Okay, I've got some new glasses again, so I'm, I'm a little bit uh, disoriented. But don't worry if I fall over, don't worry, I'll get up, okay? If I trip and, yeah, stumble, don't worry, I'll get up. Uh, it'll be fine. I want to see if any of you can define the word time for me. Now, it's a word you use quite often. Um, we intuitively understand what it means, but when someone asks you to put it into words... How would you define the word time? This is what the dictionary says. A non-spatial continuum in which events occur in apparently irreversible succession. That's what you were going to say, right Dan? Okay. That's what it means. So let me ask you, how are you managing your non-spatial continuum of late? I saw a television docu documentary several years ago and they were talking about the Industrial Revolution, and they were saying that there was one invention that had the most profound effect on uh, humanity. And when I first heard their assertion about what this invention was, I was uh, skeptical, to say the least. I just didn't believe it. Any of you want to hazard a guess what it might have been? The printing press? That's a good guess. No, Margaret. Okay, that's very close. The mass-produced affordable wristwatch. Suddenly, everybody knew what time it was. Suddenly, everybody knew how much time they'd lost. Suddenly, everybody knew how late they were. And the pace of life dramatically uh, picked up. You know, again, I was skeptical, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's probably, probably... Correct. The wristwatch fundamentally changed the pace of modern life. As one man said, lost time is never found. So we always live in a hurry. I bet most of you live in a hurry. How many of you live in a hurry? I bet most of you do. Now we have a few honest people. They're admitting that they live in a hurry. Cramming in as much as we can into our limited supply of non-spatial continuum. You know, we have fast food. We have drive-through banking, we have internet shopping, fast cars, superhighways, uh, bullet trains, jet planes, blackberries, cell phones, and whatever it is Tyler carries. I forget. What is it? An iPhone, yes. We have all this stuff. We have all this stuff, right? And it doesn't really matter what it is anymore. We want it fast and we want it now, right? Isn't that the modern culture? We want it fast, we want it now. That's the mindset. It all started with the wristwatch. I believe these guys are right about that. Unfortunately, many people who call themselves Christians bring that mindset to their spirituality. Unfortunately, I say. It seems as if your average Christian only has so much non-spatial continuum for God. And obviously, beloved, that's not the way it ought to be. You know, so many who call themselves Christians seek to efficiently manage the God part of their life like they manage the rest of their life. And you can't manage God like that. About 15 years ago, I was in, a, I was a, I was in business and I was quite the busy businessman and I'd committed to a theological discussion on Wednesday night and I wasn't making very many of the, of the meetings. And my spiritual mentor challenged me on this. And uh, I explained to him that I was extremely busy, had a lot of pressure and all this stuff. And this is what he said to me. And I'm going to say this to you too. If your life is hurried and your life is too busy for God, I'm saying this to you too. This is what he said to me. 
Is this about God? Is your hurry, is it about God or is it about you? He said, is, is, is that for God or is that for you? All the stuff you try to cram into the day, is that for Him or is that for you? Do you think it pleases God that you live like this? And then He said, are you living for Him and what He wants? Or are you living for yourself and what you want? My spiritual mentor took me to the, wood, the proverbial woodshed. And I realized, as I, as I took inventory, it really was mostly about me. It wasn't so much about the Lord. How does God say it in Psalm 46.10? He says, be hurried and know that I am God. Is that how He says it? What does God say? Be still. be still and know that I am God. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you carving out time to be still with God every single day? Or you, know, you, you can't get God. You know, you can't have God with a drive-through mentality. There's no such thing as fast food theology. You can't have God like that. You can't have the Ancient of Days like that. You can't have the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. You can't have eternal uh, Jehovah God in a hurry. It doesn't work like that. He doesn't disclose Himself like that. God says, be still and know that I am the living God. I love how the message paraphrases that great Psalm 46.10. It says, Step out of the traffic, take a long, loving look at me, your high God. <laughs> That's what He needs for you to do every day. Are you doing that? Are you taking time to look at your awesome and beautiful and breathtaking God every single day? This is the Word of God. We can't come to the Ancient of Days um, with a fast food mentality. So, if you want to know God, you've got to invest your time. You've got to invest your non-spatial continuum. You need to carve out time to know the Lord. You need to take off your wristwatch and you need to be still. You can't bring your I want it fast and I want it now mindset to Jehovah God. He's not going to perform for you in that kind of context. The Alpha and Omega does not work like that. He says, be still and know. Another thing I've noticed about many who call themselves Christians, they bring the same mentality to their trials. They want to pray about their trial and they want it over now. Right? I want it over now, God. I prayed about it. I want it over now. Now, the same kind of mentality we bring to our trials. We want resolution, and we want it yesterday. I was speaking to someone recently, and they were bemoaning the fact that they'd been in a trial for a couple of years, and they'd been praying earnestly about it. And the, the, the connotation was that God should have performed by now. Right? God should have delivered me by now. Well, how do you know God isn't, God isn't on His way with deliverance? How do you know, Christian? How do you know? Listen, God's time is perfect. And the sooner you learn that, the sooner I learn that, the better off we're going to be. We're going to be able to rest in the sovereign providences of God. I heard Piper talk about this one time. He, he was counseling a young Christian who had uh, been in this trial for five years. And again, the inference was, 
I should be delivered by now. And guess where Piper went in the Bible to talk to this young person? He talked to him about Joseph. How long was Joseph's trial? Does anybody remember? You can do the math in the Scripture. Joseph's trial lasted 13 years. Piper, in effect, said to the young man, he says, hey, come back after it's been 13 years and let's talk again. Now that's not the, I guess, the softest thing you can say to somebody, but it's a real challenge. Piper's saying, look at God and trust Him. It doesn't matter how many years go by. God's still God. His promise is still good. Amen? Anybody believe it? God's still God. And His promise is still good. Joseph was in his trial for 13 years. Sometimes God will leave us in a trial that we may learn to be still. And we may learn to know the Ancient of Days as He intends to be known. And you can only know Him like that if you're still. God is not overly concerned about how much time He consumes in teaching Himself to you. (laughs) That's not His concern. He is outside of time. He's not constrained by time. And so, beloved, if you want to walk with Jehovah God, you need to not worry about how long it takes for Him to deliver you from something you believe He needs to deliver you from. Or, you just don't, you can't, you can't worry about your wristwatch in your relationship with the Ancient of Days. Now, last week, just as an introduction, uh, we talked a lot about the. We looked at the great book of Esther and we talked about how lucky Mordecai and Esther were. And Mordecai appeared to be lucky at every turn in the book of Esther uh, for an extended period of time. But Joseph appears to be unlucky in the book of Genesis. Now we debunked the concept of luck last week for those of you who were here. we just debunked it, the idea of luck and chance. Luck is nothing. It's a, man, it's, it's a word that men use to confess their ignorance. These words are vacuous. They don't mean anything. Luck, chance, random occurrence. It's, it's, it's just a simple attempt to quantify ignorance. As Bible believers, we are no longer ignorant. We don't believe in luck and chance. We've... Uh, Purge that from our lexicon. We don't need that word. We don't need good luck. We're in the sovereign hands of El Shaddai. We talked a lot about that last week. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that He rules and He reigns and He has dominion over all things. Uh, Including all of the galaxies in the cosmos and their courses and the courses of the neutron in the one cell. God is in charge of everything. He sovereignly directs all things. This is the assertion of the Bible. He is absolute and uncontested in infinite power and authority. That's what sovereignty means. And Satan and men cannot stymie or frustrate our awesome and great God. Bible believers know that we're not the beneficiaries of fortuitous chance, random events. We are the beneficiaries of the sovereign acts of El Shaddai. Ephesians 1.11 He works all things after the counsel of His will. Psalm 104.19 I shared with you last week. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over 
Oh, God says I act and no one can out, no one can turn back my outstretched hand. We talked a little bit about those great chapters in Isaiah last week where God says I'm God, nobody else is. He says I'm sovereign, I'm in charge. I do whatever I please in heaven and earth. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's the biblical God. And I've always challenged you, if you hear somebody preaching a pathetic kind of God, that's not the biblical God. And if you're in a church, you need to leave that church. Because El Shaddai says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel chapter 4, no one can stay my hand, God says. And Psalm 115, he does whatever he pleases. And beloved, God is sovereign over the good times and God is sovereign over, yes, the hard times. He's sovereign in both regards. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. He's going he, to finish the good work He's begun in you. He's going to bring you into conformity with His Son. And here's a tip. It won't be a drive-through kind of experience. As God brings you into conformity with His Son, His hands will be on you and He will press down sometimes. Very, very hard. And He is going to change you. He, he's the master artisan. He's always building a masterpiece. So if you have a Bible, I hope you'll open it to chapter 37 of Genesis. Chapter 37 of Genesis. I'm just going to fly through a couple of chapters here on the story of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest son of Jacob. Verse 3 of chapter, 20, uh, chapter 37 tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his, all his other sons. Verse 4 tells us that Joseph's brothers knew this and they hated him for it. Uh, verse 5 and following tells us that Joseph had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him and even his father would bow down to him. And because of this dream, his brothers hated him all the more. So the, the brothers plot to kill Joseph. And Judah steps in, one of the brothers, he says, well, what profit is there to kill the boy? Let's sell him off as a slave and at least make some money. So they, they sell Joseph off to some Ishmaelites who are traveling to Egypt. The, the sons take the money and, and Joseph is on his way to Egypt. Joseph in Egypt is sold as a slave to Potiphar, an officer in the government. And when we look at this, if we just stop and look at this, we see the injustice of it. We see how unfair it is. We see how undeserved it is. We see how heartless it is. And it is all of those things. But there's a huge lesson here for you and me. Let me ask you, is God absent in this? Is God absent in what has happened to Joseph? No. Is God not paying attention? Has God let this injustice, this unfairness slip past Him? Or... Possibly it's God doing some good thing that we cannot understand yet. Let me ask you, Christian friend, when the hard thing comes in your life, are you wringing your hands and are you worried about it? Are you anticipating the fact that God says, it doesn't matter how hard it is in your life, uh, my beloved, this is, the this is a promise for believers, this is not a promise for unbelievers. No matter how hard it gets in your life, I'm working for your good. How many of you believe that? Listen, friends, if you believe that, you are free. You are free to live a fearless and bold and courageous Christianity before a lost and unbelieving world. And people will see that God is alive and well in your life. You actually believe Him. You actually believe His promises. 
We're going to see that in Joseph's life tonight. As we talked about last week, God's invisible sovereignty was on display in Esther and it will be on display tonight. We are not called to understand it. We are called to what? Believe it. You cannot parse God, beloved. Most of the time, you will not be able to understand, particularly in the trial, what God is doing. God hasn't called you to understand it. God has called you to believe His promises and to look for the deliverance. Amen? That's what God has called His children to do. I love what Graham Cook says about God. I just absolutely love this. He says, we always know what God is going to be like, but we never know what God is going to do. That's the truth. If you've walked with Christ very long, you understand this. But you get to the place with Jesus, if you've gone very far with Him, it doesn't matter what He does as long as you are walking with Him. You are so hopelessly in love with Him. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. His providences are always sweet because He is there. What did we talk about in James chapter 1? What did James say? Count it all joy when you're in trial. Why? Because God's coming. It's always a God encounter when you're in a hard spot. It's always a God encounter. And Joseph is in a hard spot. And he doesn't understand. But he believes. And beloved, man, I, I, I hope every one of you, I hope you can say that too. You're in a hard spot. You don't understand it. But you don't get mad at God. You don't rail at God. You don't ask God to explain Himself. You just simply believe His promises and you trust Him. That's the way real Christians live. That's the way sons and daughters of Jesus Christ live. Let me ask you, are you demanding answers from God in your trial? He'll never answer your questions. He doesn't explain Himself to His creatures. Just go read the book of Job. He doesn't explain Himself to men. Now, He graciously reveals Himself, but He never explains Himself. God says simply, be still and know I am God. That's your job description. <laughs> it's really not any more complex than that. Be still and know that I am God. And I love this. You know, real Christians love God even when it gets hard. We're no name it and claim it bunch in this church. We love God. We love God more than God's blessing. Amen? We love God more than God's blessing. If He takes everything away, we still love Him. It's not about His blessing. Praise God for His blessings. We love His blessing. But it's not preeminent about, preeminently about His blessings. It's about Him. And whether it's good, whether it's hard, whether it's easy, we love Him and we trust Him. And we, as we're going to see in the life of Joseph, wait on Him. So it's, it looks bad for Joseph, but does he get a pout going? Does he get a pout going? Does he have a pity party? Look at uh, chapter 39, verse 2. And the Lord, Joseph has been sold to Potiphar, and the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man in the house of his master. Genesis 39, verse 2. Now his master saw that the Lord, look at this, the, the master saw that the Lord was with Joseph, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight, became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that uh, he owned he put in, uh, him in charge of. I love this. The unbeliever saw the Lord in Joseph. Let me ask you, in the hard spot, 
Are the unbelievers around you seeing the reality of God in your life? Beloved, that's part of what the trial is all about. The unbeliever is supposed to see. Your spouse is supposed to see. Your children are supposed to see the reality of God and the, the, the foundation of His promises. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. We look to God. We rest in God. We trust God. And we will wait on God. And, and Joseph goes to work. He, he, he's, not, he's not sitting there railing at God or questioning the providences of God or feeling sorry for himself or pouting. He puts his skills to work in the trial and he honors God in them. You got to love it. God is with him. The Lord was with him. We didn't, that didn't really have to be written there. We knew it, right? And if you've been a Christian very long and you've walked with God very long, you know that's true. The Lord is with you. He is with you. He could not, not be with His people. That's the kind of God He is. And that's what He's promised. Beloved, you're not supposed to bemoan the trial. You're supposed to receive it in the providences of God. And you're supposed to glorify Him in it. If you don't hear me say anything else tonight, hear me say that. You are on stage with a megaphone when the cancer comes. And all the believers around you and all the unbelievers around you are going to be watching you. Do you really believe this God? Do you really believe His promises? Beloved, we're not supposed to bemoan the fact that we're in a trial. We're supposed to be ready for it. We're supposed to be ready for it when it comes. Jesus has told us it's going to come. For in this life you will have what? Trouble. It will come. And you will be on stage with a megaphone. And you can either glorify your God or you can get a pout going. But God has called us. He's called His children to bring glory and honor to His name. And notice that in the midst of this trial, God is even prospering Joseph. Verse 6 tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance and Potiphar's wife desired him and wanted to have an affair with him. Uh, and uh, although Joseph was treated pretty shabbily, you know, I, I just want to make a side point here. You know, sometimes when we're really in a trial, sometimes you'll see people who profess to be Christians and even uh, real Christians, they'll, they'll try to find consolation in sin. They'll make an excuse. Well, everything's been going badly, so I deserve a little bit of this, right? And Joseph could have been making some excuses here. He could have rationalized that he deserved to have some, some joy and some pleasure with this woman, but you've got to love Joseph, he doesn't take consolation in sin. He says, verse 9, How could I do this great evil and sin against my God? Verse 10, uh, Because he spurned her, she pro protests and falsely accuses him of seduction. And of course, Potiphar believes his wife. He's falsely accused and thrown into jail. Surely, surely Joseph is going to give up on God now, right? You would, right? You would give up on God at this point, right? I mean, you know, uh, he's been sold into slavery. He's lost his freedom. Uh, he's away from his family. He's had to work and live as a slave. He gets falsely accused of a crime and he gets thrown in jail. It's time to quit on God, right? No. No. Beloved, it's never time to quit on God. If you're a real Christian, you already know that. You never give up on the promises of God. 
Why? Because there's not one rogue molecule in the universe. You can count on it. Not one of His promises will fall to the ground. Jehovah will keep every one of them. Jehovah will keep every one of him. So Joseph's not having a pity party. He doesn't get mad at God. He doesn't rail at God. He simply glorifies God in the jail. Look at verses 21 to 23. But the Lord was, was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the jailer. And Joseph becomes uh, chief, among, uh, chief among all in the jail. And he supervised everything. The Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord prospered him. Look at chapter 40, verse 7. Chapter 40, verse 7. The Pharaoh's cupbearer and, and his uh, baker were thrown in jail. And notice this. Look, at, look, what, look what Joseph... Joseph notices that they have a downcast countenance. Now here's a man who has every reason to have a pity party going, and he notices the countenance of his fellow prisoners. He says, why are your, why are your faces so sad? That's an astonishing thing. Why are your faces so sad? You know, to an outside observer, Joseph's life is being wasted. But it's not so in God's economy. To an outside observer, his, his life is being wasted in prison. But beloved, God's doing a huge thing. God's doing an eternal thing. Some of you are not convinced that God is doing an eternal thing in your life. And that's why you're still living your Christianity about this big. But if you ever get that concept that God's doing a huge thing in you and He, he intends to do a huge thing in you, an eternal thing in you, if you ever get that in your heart and your mind, you will not live your Christianity like that. It will not be some side issue to the rest of your life. It will be your life. And Joseph understands this. Joseph understands it. God is never not doing something in His child's life. And God uh, brings the cupbearer and the baker into jail and they have these dreams and Joseph interprets these dreams. Uh, chapter 40, he gives an accurate interpretation. Chapter 40, verse 14. Joseph says, hey, when you get out of jail, remember me. I'm here unjustly. I've not done anything that I should deserve to be in this dungeon. Well, Joseph gets slighted again. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph and Joseph spends two more years in jail. In chapter 41, we see that Pharaoh finally has uh, two dreams of his own. And none of his wise men can explain them to him. The cupbearer finally remembers Joseph and says there's a, there's a Hebrew in prison that can uh, uh, discern the meaning of dreams. And, and Pharaoh says, sin for him. So I'm in chapter 41, verse 15 and 16. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've, I've, had it said about, I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. Verse 16, uh, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now what does he do there? Isn't that awesome? He takes no credit. He says, it's not about me. I've been in this, I've been mistreated for 13 years now, but it's not about me. It's about God. He said, God will give you an answer. It's not in me. He's still glorifying God. Let me ask you, friend. If you were in your 13th year of trial, would you still be glorifying God? 
Real Christians do. Real Christians do. I'm not saying we don't have hard times and weak moments. I'm not saying that. But the Bible says the real Christian what? Perseveres. Because God is holding us. The real Christian will persevere. He continues to give glory to God. And Joseph interprets the dreams of of Pharaoh. uh, Chapter 41, verse 25. Joseph says God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then verse Chapter 41, chapter 41, verse 38. Chapter 41, verse 38. Listen to this. Pharaoh says, Now, how could we find a man uh, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. He becomes the vice president of Egypt. The only person higher than Joseph is Pharaoh himself. So are you starting to see what God is doing? Most of you know this story. What a fortuitous, serendipitous, random coincidence, lucky chance event. He's vice president of Egypt. God has prepared Joseph and positioned Joseph. It's the same thing we saw with Esther last week. God prepared Esther and then He positioned Esther to do what God had for them to do. Was it a lucky chance event? Or maybe El Shaddai, El Shaddai's hand is on his children. Maybe he's causing all things to work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose. What, what chapter and verse is that? Someone tell me. Romans 8.28. You've got to love that verse. If you don't love that verse, there's something really bad wrong with you. <laughs> Romans 8.28. Man, it's a mountain to stand on. It's a mountain to stand on. The promise of God. He's working all things for the good of those who love Him, those called according to His purpose. And verse 46 tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when he became prime minister. Why is that important? I've already said it to you. It's important to you and to me because God is saying to you, sometimes your trials are going to last 13 years. Sometimes they will last longer. The point is, I'm still God and my promise is still good and I expect you to live like you believe that. Just like Joseph did. Just like Joseph did. Sometimes our trials will last a long time. But we're we're called to trust Him, believe Him, rest in Him and anticipate what good thing God is going to do at the other end. Beloved, in the trial, are you honoring God? Is your family seeing that God is the most real person in your life? God should be the most real person in your life. If you're being still and knowing Him, He will be the most powerful person, the most powerful being in your life. Those around you are supposed to be seeing that. They're supposed to be seeing your great love and adoration for the Lord Jesus. So God has prepared and positioned Joseph to accomplish His sovereign good pleasure. What a beautiful thing. On our worst day when we can't cry anymore, Romans 8.28 is true. It's true. It's true. God is on His way. 
God is going to bring deliverance. God is going to work some good out of the trial. How can you not love this promise? And let me, let me just say this. You know, you may not get temporal resolution to your trial. You may not get temporal resolution to your trial. You may step into eternity and your trial had never gone away. But I love the thing we learned about the heaven when we were in the heaven series, and Randy Alcorn talked about this. You know, sometimes you never know what your trial was about here in this life, but you find out the trial you had in this life was preparation for the thing God had you to do in the next. There's this continuum in life for the Christian. You know, death is simply a step into eternity. That's all it is. God may be preparing you right now in the hard spot for the thing He wants you to do in eternity. I know most Christians don't even think like that. But it's the truth. It's the truth. The story closes, most of you know, uh, because of the great famine, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Uh, Joseph tests them uh, to determine if they have changed. He discovers that they have changed. And listen to what Joseph tells his brothers. He does not kick against the hard providences of God. He simply rests in Him. Look at chapter 45, verse 5. Chapter 45, verse 5. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Joseph says to his brothers. Or if you don't know the story, you're going to love it. Listen to what he says. Now, of course, his brothers were afraid that Joseph would take revenge. But listen to what Joseph says. 45.5 And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here into slavery. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8, Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now wait a minute. I thought it was their jealousy and envy and their sin that sent Him to Egypt. Isn't that what the text said? Yes, it was. But God was working good. Even in the sin, the free will sin of men, God can work good. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He calls it the complex good. God works good. I love this. You've got to love this about God's sovereignty. Joseph said, hey, it's about God. And it's about what He wants to do. And I love this. If you listen to what Joseph said... God is not simply coming in after the fact in retrospect and rescuing Joseph. That's not what the text says. God is orchestrating. Do you understand? God is out front. God is orchestrating. He's exercising His invisible sovereignty. He's not coming in and rescuing. This is the purpose of God. He's working in the sin of His fallen creatures. Now, what is the greatest example of God working in the sin of His fallen creatures? Working good uh, in the sin of His fallen creatures. What's the best example in the Bible? The cross. God worked His greatest good through the greatest evil on this planet when His creatures nailed His holy Son to the tree. You know what the book of Acts says? You know what it says? 
This man, Jesus, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by, uh, by your hands, you godless men. Acts 4.28 says, to, uh, God has delivered him up to do whatever thy hand and purpose has predestined. God is sovereign. And beloved, if you ever get this in your head, you'll be free. You'll be free to live like a Christian supposed to live. You won't have to wring your hands like we talked about last week. And look at verse, look at chapter 50 and I'm done. Chapter 50, verse 19 and 20. Again, the brothers were concerned. Jacob died. The brothers thought, well, now he's going to take his, now Joseph will take his revenge. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me. They're responsible for their evil. God didn't prompt them to do evil. It was their evil. It was their free will choice. It was their evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God can do this. God is awesome in this way. What an awesome encouragement for us Christians. Even in the unjust, unfair, hurtful sin of others as they aim it at us. And we feel the results of it. God says, I'm doing a good thing. Again, Romans 8.28 is only for believers. It's not for unbelievers. It's not for the merely religious. It's not merely for the church member. It's for those who are born again and those who love Him. Go read Romans 8.28. It's for those who love Him. Those called according to His purpose. So beloved, don't claim that promise unless you're in love with Christ and you're walking with Him. <laughs> that, is, that is the Word of God. So let me ask you, beloved, are you in a trial just now? Have you been in a trial for some time? Have you been in a trial for 13 years yet? Be still and know that He's God. Be still and know that He will bring deliverance in His right hand. Be still and rest in His invisible sovereignty. Be still and know that He is preparing you and He has positioned you for His purposes. Be still and know if God is for us, who can be against us. The question is, beloved, <laughs> do you really believe He's for you? And will you really go out in the world and live like a son or a daughter of God? Like you believe He's real and like you believe every single word He said to you. Every single promise He's made to you. That's what's at stake tonight. I want you to learn to rest in God's sovereignty and I want you to learn to glorify Him in it. I want you to understand God's doing a huge and eternal thing in your life in the hard spot. And it's a God encounter. He's on His way. God never doesn't come in the hard spot. There's so many beautiful lessons to learn here. I love God's sovereignty. When I finally begin to learn about God's sovereignty, that there's not one rogue molecule in the universe, and that all His promises are good, and that He has uncontested power and authority in the universe, I finally was able to live my Christianity the way I knew I always was supposed to live my Christianity. I still got a long way to go. I'm not standing up here and holding myself up as an example. But I'm saying, if you really get this about God, if you really get this about God, you can live it huge. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, 
We thank You for this great account in Genesis. We thank You for this great example of Joseph. How he simply rests in You and waits on You and brings glory to You. Lord, I pray that we could be Christians like that. I pray that this wouldn't just be a nice sermon we heard and some nice theology and a few nice Scripture verses, but I pray that this would be something that we would be serious about living. That we would find our liberty and our license and our freedom and our joy in Your great sovereign power. No one can stop the outstretched arm of Jehovah God. And Lord, I know You expect Your children to, to live like that is so. So help us, great God. Give us a new glimpse of Your majesty and Your glory and Your power. Father, a life-changing glimpse. A glimpse that would make it impossible for us to, to live our Christianity in some small, meager way. But that we would claim Your promises and bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus for these few moments we have left these very few moments we have left on this planet. You put us here. You redeemed us to bring glory and honor to Your name. Oh, Father, help us to be about that. Help us to be real Christians. Help us to be sober Christians. Help us to be serious Christians. Seriously joyful and joyfully serious about all that You have called, for, called us to do and all that You have put in front of us. Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, we would come in a way that honors You. And, and Father, that we would remember the great act of redemption on the cross. And that this, this remembrance would be a, a means of grace to us. Speak to us, Lord God, through this great ordinance. Forgive us our sin. Help us to repent of it that we may come to the table clean. We may come to the table loving Jesus, willing to give our lives to Him, broken and spilled out for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, we have open communion here. All who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and followed Him in believers' baptism, you're welcome to come and partake of the elements. Uh, we're going to have a song. Prepare your heart to come before the Lord and receive these elements. Uh, during the song, come up, take the bread, take the cup, go back to your seat. When the song ends, I'll stand and read a text, and then we will partake of the elements at that time. Okay? Prepare your heart. Don't come to the table unless you're going to repent of your sin. Don't come to the table in an unworthy manner, some ritualistic manner. You come to the table, repentant of your sin, praising Jesus, remembering this awesome thing He's done. So let's come to the table in a humble manner, remembering our beautiful Lord Jesus.